So we are in the middle of a series. Actually, today we are wrapping up a series on worry. Uh, If you have missed the first two parts, I would encourage you to um, go uh, back and listen because they kind of build on each other. I know a lot of you have been traveling. Uh, You can go, you can listen on iTunes um, or you can listen on Google Play. I found out like two weeks ago that you can listen to us on Alexa. So the first thing you hear in the morning, Alexa, play the table church and I will greet you in your kitchen or wherever your Alexa is or even creepier if you want to go to sleep to my voice at night. You know, you're laying there in bed. You can't sleep. I have been told my sermons are excellent um, sleep aids. So you just uh, say, hey Alexa, will you play the table church and you will be right to sleep. Technology is great. So we are wrapping up this series um, on worry and essentially what we've said so far is this, that Jesus tells us that today has enough trouble of its own, so don't worry about tomorrow because the truth of the matter is, and we all know this intuitively, even if we don't know it, like we don't think about it, but we can't control the future. We want to believe that we can control the future. We want to believe that by worrying, we somehow have some impact in what happens tomorrow, but none of us can control the future. And so Jesus is just trying to say, look, Focus on today, focus on this moment, on on what you can actually do in the present to change the situation you're in, and then give your tomorrows to God. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Just focus on today. Do all you can in the now, and then trust God for tomorrow. Like, do all you can in the now and trust God for tomorrow. Because what ends up happening is we get ourselves so worked up thinking about what could happen, not what has happened, but what could possibly happen, that we aren't able to be present in the moment. We aren't able to be present with the people that God has put directly in our path. We aren't able to be present with our family and our friends. Um, We aren't able to be present in our jobs or in our community group because we are, our brain is constantly thinking, but what if, 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 and just like, just chill. Like seriously, chill out. Focus on what you can do today and trust your tomorrows to God. So today what I want to do is I want to end with one of my all-time favorite stories in the Hebrew Scripture. Um, In fact, if you've come to the table any period of time, you've probably heard me tell the story a couple of times. Um, but, but I love, one of the things I love about Scripture is it always is fresh and new and alive. And I discovered something um, in this text. There is a question that God asks us in this text, actually a question that God asks Elijah, that I think is so helpful for helping us understand or deal with worry. And so we're going to talk about the story, but before we do, um, and, and before we get to the question, I just want to provide a little background, a little backdrop. So we spent a a few weeks, I think five weeks, talking about the life of King David. Now, after King David dies, his son Solomon, um, who, remember, is known for being the wisest man who ever lived, his son Solomon um, ascends the throne. Now, the problem is, for a guy who's really wise, he's actually a pitiful leader. He starts off strong, but he has a penchant for lots of different things, which leads him down a path which isn't healthy. And so at the end of his reign... This this kingdom that David has built into a powerhouse is split into multiple kingdoms. Israel is divided. And so you end up, um, following the reign of Solomon, you end up with two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which keeps the name Israel. So there's 12 tribes. um, There's 12 tribes of Israel. Um, 12 states, 12, um, yeah, 12 states is probably the best way to describe it. So there's 12 tribes, 12 states. Ten of the tribes stay with the northern kingdom, stay with Israel. Two of the tribes um, go with the, the southern kingdom, which is Judah. 
which is actually what more of us know of as Israel, because now I'm getting a little more into the weeds than we should. But the, the ten northern tribes end up getting wiped out by the Assyrian army. Um, they, what is left, the remnant ends up kind of intermingling um, with uh, the Samaritans or end up like the, what we know of as the Samaritans are what is remaining of the uh, northern tribes or the northern kingdom. And then they begin to intermarry with other people and they become the Samaritans. That's more than you need to know, but I have a hard time stopping myself sometimes. So anyway, so you have uh, the northern and the southern kingdoms. A few years after King Solomon, there is a, a king of the northern kingdom who is described as being the most evil of all the kings in all of Israel. And you can read the story in 1st and 2nd Kings, or in 1st Kings, there is a 1st Kings and a 2nd Kings, I guess because there are a lot of kings in the history of Israel. And um, I, I think you should actually go back and read this whole story for yourself. I'm going to skim over a, a few sections. Um, but there is a king that is described as the most evil king in the history of Israel. And his name is Ahab. Now, also, Ahab is the name of a guy in what book? Does anyone remember where else? Moby Dick. Yeah, Moby Dick. And does anyone, this is just, this is totally, uh, what is Moby Dick's first mate's name? Anyone remember? Starbucks. Which, it, this week, I was, I was reading an article about how much, how worried the corporate executives at Starbucks are about their share price, which brings us back to worry. Now, that's how a professional gets back on track. So, King Ahab, not the guy in the book. Um, king Ahab is known as being the worst king in the history of Israel. And so he, he, uh, he leads Israel along with his wife, a woman by the name of Jezebel. Um, we may have heard of that name before. There's a blog, Jezebel. Uh, it, it is not a common child name, so I know sometimes parents are kind of trying to think of a unique name that not many other people have used. Jezebel is underutilized, so that's just a put that out there. So anyway, King Ahab has a wife by the name of Jezebel, and they are together just an evil couple. And, and Israel is led on a track, on a path that is not healthy. And, and so finally, God is so fed up that he sends Elijah to go tell um, Ahab and Jezebel, look, if you don't turn from your ways if you don't turn to the God of Israel, the God who has brought you to this point, the God who has carried Israel through all of its history, if you don't turn, I'm going to turn the rain off, and it's not going to rain anymore. It's a, it's a fascinating story. You should go and read this for yourself. But so Elijah goes, he's a little bit freaked out because Ahab has and Jezebel have a very um, strong temper, but he goes and says, look, you can't continue on the path that you're going down, and if you don't turn from your ways, the rain is going to stop. And then the rain stops. And for three years, there is no rain in all of Israel, and the crops begin to dry up, the economy is a wreck. And, and God is trying to teach Israel a lesson. And during this period when they have turned from the God who carried them through the desert, who carried them to the promised land, and they turn to the, to, the, to the idols of Baal, during this period, God gives them a chance to turn back to him. And at the end of three years, God cares for um, Elijah, the prophet, all during this period, all during this time. He cares for him. At the end of three years, he said, go back to Ahab and give Ahab a chance to change his ways. And what ends up happening is Ahab and um, Elijah have a duel on the top of Mount Carmel. 
It's one of my favorite stories of all time. So essentially, Ahab and Jezebel decide this. Okay, here's what we're going to do. You've got your God, Elijah, but we've got our God. We have our God, and we have all these prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Baal. Let's settle this once and for all. And so they go to the top of the mountain, and they begin to beg their respective gods or ask their respective gods, will you make it rain? And, and, uh, and Elijah's like, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do you a solid. I'm going to let you go first. You, you go first, and then I'll go. You do your best shot. And so we pick up the story um, in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning with verse 26. So all these prophets of Baal are up there, and they begin to, they begin to yell out. They begin to call on the name, and we read this. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. I love this. No one answered, and they danced around the altar that they had made. And at noon, this is where I sometimes feel bad about myself, and because as a leader, I sometimes feel I should be a bit holier, and sometimes I'm just less holy than I should be. But this guy's like a prophet of God. His, I mean, he is in the Bible. But at noon, he begins to taunt them. I love that. At noon, he, be, he begins to taunt them, and he says, shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or traveling. Maybe he is asleep and needs to be awake and must be awakened. This is so good. And so they shouted louder, and then they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. That's awkward. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. And this is this line I have underlined. No one paid attention. Right, there is silence. So this goes on and on, and Elijah is just egging them on. And then finally, Elijah's like, okay, it's my turn. Verse 33. So he arranged the wood, and he cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said, look, you know what? We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make this just a little more difficult. Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. Like, just soak this, this offering with as much water as possible because I'm about ready to call down fire from heaven and I don't want you to think this is a magic trick. I don't want you to think I'm pulling something off. So soak this. And he ordered them. And then he said, no, no, no. You know what? Do it again. So they did it a third time and the water ran down around the altars and even filled the trench. It was waterlogged. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then, and then God says, hey, I'm going, to do a lot, I'm going to do Ahab a solid. And he says, Elijah, you need to go warn Ahab that's about ready to rain. And it's going to be a messy rain. So if he wants to get home, if he wants to get off the top of the mountain, he should start moving now. And so Elijah does it. He's like, hey, Ahab, just so you know, it's about ready to rain. You should probably get moving home. Ahab, after seeing the, everything that had just happened, is like, you know what? That's a good idea. So he takes off and he gets home. And, and he gets home and he, he gets back to Jezebel who stayed home, he says, Jezebel, I need to tell you about what just happened. I think we may have a problem. 
Now, it would seem that her response at this point would be, you know what, maybe we've been wrong and we need to change our ways, but that is not how she responded. First Kings 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not take your life, take your life like that of one of them. She's like, you are going down. I am going to kill you. So verse 3. So at this point I'm thinking, you know what? If God just destroyed an altar and caused it to like rain, like a messy rain, I'm not running. Like God has my back. But verse 3, after all this just went down, what do we find? Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. This makes me feel so much better because I find that I, I often, at, at moments when God has done something miraculous, something amazing, he showed up in a unique and a special way, that it's the very next day I find myself doubting whether God is good and whether God will be there. And I find the tapes of worry beginning to play in my head. The moment this happens, when Elijah hears that his life is threatened, he's like, you know what, I'm going to get out of town. And so he begins to run. Verse 3, and when he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there. And while he, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and there he came to a broom brush, a broom bush. And he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. He's like, I, I am tired, and I have had enough. And he just collapses, and he's like, God, will you just take my life? Like, I am done. I am tired of running. I'm tired of Ahab. I am tired of Jezebel. I'm tired of all the prophets of Baal. I just, I want, I'm done. Like, kill me now. It's over. I've had enough, Lord, he said. I've had enough. Take my life. And then he says this. He says, I am no better than my ancestors. And what he essentially means by that is, I am no better than people who are dead. Right? I am no better than people who are dead. Then he lay down, verse 5. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank. And then he lay down again. He was just exhausted. And then, verse 7, the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Dude, eat something. You are killing yourself out here in the desert. I know you want to die, but your, your story is not over. There's more to your story. You're killing yourself. Verse 8, so he got up and ate and he drank, strengthened by that food. I'm guessing he's strengthened both physically and mentally by the food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, or Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, this is important because uh, what, what Horeb is, uh, is sometimes referred to as Mount Sinai. This is the mountain where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. It is known as the mountain of God. If you want to get in touch with or you want to be near God, you go to this mountain. But at the same time, he is running away from where he has been placed and where he had been called. He's going to a place of comfort. So he is now strengthened, but he is running to this mountain where maybe he is hoping to somehow come into contact with God. We don't know why he goes. But verse 9, there he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. 
And he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? This is not where I have called you. And that's the question. That's the question that, like, I'd always missed. Like, why are you here? Because I think what happens in so many of our lives is that worry drives us to places we never intended to go. Some of you are staying in jobs that you shouldn't be in. You know it is not the career path for you. You know it is not where you are called, but you are there because you are worried to take anything else or to do anything else, to take that step, to take that leap. And God shows up and says, seriously, why are you still here? Some of, you have, some of you are literally running away from something. You are running away from your past. You are running away from your family. You are hiding out, and, and God shows up, and it's like, what are you doing here? This is not where I have called you. Some of you are like emotionally and physically backing away, maybe from your family or from friends or whatever it might be, and, and God shows up, and he says, why are you here? Why are you here? Some of you are in a place that you've never been before emotionally or physically or wherever it might be and with stress and anxiety and fear about tomorrow. Like you don't even recognize who you are at this moment. And God shows up and is like, why are you here? What are you doing here? And what if God showed up in that place where you have no business being, whether it be physical or emotional or mental, and said, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why did you run? Why did you allow the uncertainties of tomorrow to cause you to go to a place I never intended you to go? Why have you allowed the uncertainty of a future you can never control to, make, to, to cause you to make these choices? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Verse 10, Elijah replied, and he does exactly what I'm tempted to do. He begins to lecture God. He begins to lecture God. God, you know what? Here, let me tell you about my situation, just in case you didn't know. This is why I'm here. Why don't you just wait a second and listen? I will tell you. Verse 10, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I've been zealous for you. Back off. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars, and they put your prophets to death with the sword, in case you hadn't noticed. And I am the only one left, and they're now trying to kill me. I mean, he is throwing himself a major pity party. He's like, God, you clearly have been not paying attention, but things are falling apart. That is why I'm here, since you asked. Then the Lord said, seriously, just... Just be quiet. Get up and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Go stand in the presence of the Lord. And then a great and powerful wind came and tore the mountain apart and it shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled a cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Why are you here? Some of us are looking, we are looking at our circumstances through a lens where we have forgotten that God holds our tomorrows. And we've begun to believe the lie that there is no hope and there is no future and there is no purpose. Why are you here? And he replied, 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. They rejected your covenant. They're trying to kill me. That's why I'm here. And the Lord said, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And Elijah's like, wait, wait. Israel already has a king who wants to kill me. And God's like, look, you've been so busy throwing yourself a pity party, hanging out in this mountain, hiding out in this mountain. You've missed that I still have a plan for the future. There is a hope. There is hope for the future. I am not done working out my plan and my will in the world. You, on the other hand, have been so focused in on your worry and on your situation that you've failed to see what I'm up to. I'm not done. There is a hope for Israel. There is going to be another day. The story has not ended. Now get up and go anoint these people as the next king of Israel because Israel's story is still being written. And then he said, and Elisha also, uh, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah to succeed you. I don't know, I probably totally butchered that. Um, to succeed you as a prophet. This is where Elijah's like, whoa, 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 just, what, you, you have a prophet already. Wait, wait, you getting rid of me? Verse 17. Jehu will put to death any who escape from the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. And then he says, and I will reserve 7,000 in Israel, all those whose knees have not bailed down to Baal, and whose mouth have not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. You become so fixated on your problem that you lost sight of what I'm trying to do in the world. And beyond that, you're not alone. There are literally thousands of other people like you, but you became so focused in on your situation and on your worry that you lost sight of all these other people around you. Elijah, you are not alone. And many of us, we have had bad things happen to us. And we've allowed the bad stories, the bad moments in our lives to drown out the stories of hope and purpose and promise because we also have stories of amazing possibilities, stories where God has done things beyond anything we could have ever asked or imagined. But the, the negative, that moment that we're in right now is drowning out what seems to be any possibility of hope. And most of us have enough history with God that there is another truth for you. You know that there is another truth. You know that there is hope. You know there is possibility because you have stories to tell of that hope. And the same God who carried you through in the past is the same God who will carry you through this moment. But what happens is today's worry completely wipes out our memory of God's faithfulness in the past. Tomorrow's worry completely wipes out our, God's, our memory of God's faithfulness in the past, and we become so myopic. In our moment of worry, we forget God's faithfulness. And the worry of today and the worry of tomorrow makes us begin to doubt God. And that's the whole point of this series. This is what Jesus is trying to teach. Look, do what you can do today. 
and trust your tomorrow to God. The same God who carried you through in the past will carry you through tomorrow. And when those whispering voices begin to come, and they come at the worst possible moments, they come when we are at our weakest, they come when literally we have not had enough food, or we have not physically and emotionally taken care of ourselves, and these voices begin to whisper to us. They begin to whisper lies telling us that we aren't any good, lies telling us that there is no future, lies telling us that there is no hope. And God comes to us and He says, no, 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 those are lies. I've carried you through in the past, and I will carry you through this thing that you are facing today. Tomorrow is uncertain. You need to know tomorrow is uncertain. Tomorrow has always been uncertain. But as followers of Jesus, we do not have to be anxious. We do not have to worry and be overcome by worry because we can walk into tomorrow with the confidence that God goes with us. Now, the other option is you can worry But all your worry is going to do is going to cause you to spend all of your time and your energy and your emotional capacity on yourself. And you are literally going to drive yourself nuts. You know this. You know that the times in your life that you've worried the most, you've been the most unhealthy. And you made the dumbest choices because you become so fixated on your problem. And then often you end up fixing your problem with faulty solutions because you're just like, I have to do something about this now. I have to fix it. I have to fix it. I have to fix it. And God's like, chill out. Trust me with your tomorrows. And some of you, some of you, because of these these choices that you've begun to, you've begun to make it hard for you to be around people. You've run away from people. You've run away from family and friends. You've run away from your community group, people who wanted to be there with you. But when you become so myopic and so consumed by worry, you end up withdrawing to yourself. You do exactly what Elijah did, and you go and you hide in your own cave. And God is coming to us and he's saying, come out. I'm not done with you yet. My story is still being written. There is a hope for the future. I have a purpose for your life. I am still doing something and I am not done. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to trust your tomorrow to me. I need you to remember the ways that I've carried you in the past and know that I will carry you in the future and you can walk into tomorrow with the confidence that God will walk with you. Wherever it is that worry and stress have driven you, God has a different place for you to be. And he calls us back to a place of trust. And so here's the question I want you to think about this week. Two questions. The first is, why are you here? What are you doing? Like, think about wherever it is that you're, like, wherever you've allowed worry to drive you. Like, what are you doing there? And the second is this. What can you do to remind yourself that God is present in your life? Maybe you need to like take 10 to 15 minutes this week and you just need to sit down and you need to begin to go back and remember some of those stories. You need to remember you know, when you weren't going to get into grad school, like you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you'd completely bombed that test. And then God came through in a mighty way. Or you need to remind yourself of the story when it, there was no hope of like getting that job or whatever that thing is that you went through and God carried you through and he was faithful. Remind yourself of those stories. Write those stories down. Begin to tack those stories up all around your house. Get three by five cards, stick them in your Bible, put them on your mirror. Find ways of reminding yourself of God's faithfulness. So then when the worry comes and you begin to believe the lie, you were reminded 
that the same God who was with you yesterday will be with you tomorrow. Let's pray. God, we confess that we find worry so easy. It's so easy to become consumed with what if, what if, what if. And God, today I just pray that you would remind us of your faithfulness. That you would just begin to remind us of the stories of yesterday when you have come through in amazing ways and, and remind us that the same God who walked with us yesterday will walk with us tomorrow. Give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to do what we need to do today and to entrust our tomorrow to you. In Jesus' name, amen.